This is Chapter 49 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Perennial favorite Lisa Gardner is back. Our pet Farnack talks with her about her newest heart-stopping read. Then we hear from James Lee Burke, whose gritty new mystery transports us to the towns and wetlands of Louisiana. And finally, we'll catch up with the latest adventures of author Jojo Moyes' endearing and bumblebee tight-wearing protagonist, Lisa Clark. Three female protagonists drive the action in Look For Me, the latest psychological thriller from Lisa Gardner. Our Pat Farnack got the scoop. Four members of a family are ambushed and savagely murdered, but where is the fifth member, a 16-year-old girl, missing along with two dogs? Did she take the dogs out for a walk? Was she kidnapped? What happened to her? Maybe she could even be the killer. Yes, Look For Me, like most of my novels, is actually based on real life. Um, This scenario of a, a family that has been murdered and a missing teenager does happen from time to time. And what drew me to it is this exact question. In real life, half of the time, the missing teenage girl helped murder her own family, perhaps under the influence of, you know, the evil boyfriend, Mm -hmm. drugs, you know, a bullying friend. But the other half of the time, the poor girl herself was the intended victim. The family was murdered in order to abduct the girl. So I was struck by this notion, if you were a police detective, such as, you know, homicide veteran Edie Warren, how would you come about a case? It's Amber Alert. It's incredibly high profile. You need to know everything and anything about this family immediately. And you don't even know if you're looking for, you know, the killer or the next victim. So Detective Dee Dee Warren is back, and so is survivor Flora Dane. What made you bring these yes. two back together again? I love Detective Dee Dee Warren. She was that character that never meant to be a character. She's a walk-in <laughs> part for novel. But I, from the very beginning, I wanted a homicide detective, a female who, you know, is unabashedly a workaholic. I mean, she loves her job and she makes no apologies. And she's just become so popular. I think people respond to her self-confidence. She knows who she is and she's great at her job. She loves her job and she's going to catch her man. And then Flora came about a couple years ago, and she's almost the opposite end of the spectrum in many ways. A young woman who was abducted, held for 472 days, you know, six years later now, but she still, you know, Dee Dee's incredibly confident. Flora is someone who will spend the rest of her life with doubt. Why did she drink so much that night? Why didn't she escape from Jacob Ness sooner? Why can't she be happy? now that she's magically, you know, quote-unquote safe. And the pairing of these two I just find so interesting because what they do share is a commitment to the victim. They want to figure out what happened to Roxy Baez, but they're going to go about it completely different ways. And if Flora is maybe not as confident as Dee Dee, she's also the wild card. She's a lot more dangerous. Mm. Um, she draws a very straight line to getting her perpetrator. And if that involves physical violence, um, so be it. She's willing, really, to do anything to get her man. <laughs> well, Flora Dane, though, you don't often think about uh, what happens to survivors after they go through something so traumatic and horrific. How do they go on? How do they survive, let alone thrive? And by bringing Flora into the picture, you get to think about that a little bit. And that that was uh, fascinating. I've never planned to have continuing characters like Detective Warren, Dee Dee <laughs> Warren, or Flora Dane. Oh. 
But I think really in the case of Flora, it becomes so obvious. She just, she has such a journey to go on and she has so much more story to tell. And I think we do find her compelling. Like I didn't, again, plan this. Um, To research her and her story, I spent time with survivor groups. And yes, you get these phrases like, how do you go from being a survivor to a thriver? And I just, I find that so powerful. I mean, you root for her. You want her to be able to find a purpose. I mean, she's kind of like, she was abducted in college. There's just so many things that she never finished. So much, like she thinks she had these dreams when she was a little girl, but she can't even relate to that person anymore. I mean, when you've had a life so interrupted, particularly by trauma, how do you pick up the pieces? I think you just, as a reader, you root for her, just like you're rooting for, you know, Dee Dee Warren and Rockley Bias. You weave in stories also of the broken foster care system in America, and a reader really gets a sense of, of helplessness and fear and trauma for any child who might be trapped in a really bad foster home. What made you go down that road? So in my real life, I do work with at-risk kids. I spend enough time researching horrific crimes, and trust me, you got to do something just to sleep again at night. <laughs> and in the real world, I, there's... I've worked with some really amazing foster families. I mean, ones who've taken in feral kids and through just enough love and patience, you know, brought them back again. But it's also a system that's strained and broken. And one of my good friends actually has become a CASA volunteer. Their job is to actually work with the children, be their advocate as they are taken from their birth parents, as they're placed in foster care, to try to help guide the kids through the process. And the story she even told me, I mean, from a teenage perspective, from a kid perspective, it's basically all these adults coming into your life, ripping it apart, and then telling you it's for your own good. I mean, the the kid's perspective is very, very different. And there's no amount of, oh, this is good for you, that eases the loss of, you're not going to live with your mom and dad anymore, and I know you have siblings, but you're all going to be placed in separate homes because the foster care system doesn't have room for three kids in one. I mean, it is a traumatic process. And Roxy Baez, in the course of the novel, I think becomes a very powerful spokesperson for, if you're the kid, what all does this feel like? These waivers, I think they're called, uh, that foster homes sometimes get. I understand it's certainly a numbers game because there aren't enough homes to go around, but how can even a good foster parent reasonably handle seven kids when a couple of them are, are newborns? I mean, some of them babies. I think fiction at its best can help educate. And if there's anything I yes. think readers will walk away from after look for me is, you know, that was a really great entertaining read. But, oh, my God, our foster care system is completely overextended. The opioid crisis means we have a record number of kids and most environments, and we don't magically have more foster families. So the officials have no choice but to essentially keep piling them in. The yeah. children have to go somewhere, right? I don't have the answers to that as much as... I think it's always a really good fiction lets you walk in someone else's shoes and maybe gets you thinking about things you might not have otherwise. Yes, here, here. This uh, past weekend, there were so many ads on TV for adopting 
animals, and I'm an animal lover. I'm a, a sucker yeah. for a, a needy uh, pet. I just adopted my first senior animal, 14-year-old terrier mix <laughs> Ruby, and I Aww. adore her. It just amazes me. Everyone's like, oh, she's so lucky to have you. I'm like, are you kidding? I am so lucky to have her. We're on the same joint supplements. We have basically the same waddle in the morning. I try to get the joints going. They just want companionship. I mean, she's just That's so cute. The sweetest dog. And so one of the exciting things in Look For Me is Detective Dee Dee Warren gets a dog. And that is actually to support my local Humane Society. Each year I raffle off the opportunity. The winner gets to have their dog immortalized. So the executive director, who sadly had lost her beloved dog, Kiko, won the opportunity. Kiko will now live forever as Dee Dee's newest family member, the best spotted dog in all the land and a great <laughs> lover of eating black leather boots. So, <laughs> of course. The adventures will continue. <laughs> DD versus dog. <laughs> I have a feeling I know who's going to win that one. Well, finally, how, yeah, how, yeah, me too. <laughs> how do people get to be characters in future books or animals who get to be uh, characters in future uh, Lisa Gardner books? Absolutely. So if you visit the website, lisagardner.com, we have a kill a friend, name a buddy sweepstakes, where you can nominate the person of your choice to die in my next novel. And I think in Look For Me, she actually became a school counselor because someone wanted to honor her mom. So, I mean, I work with whoever wins. And then once a year, if people want to remember the Conway Area Humane Society or Conway Shelter, uh, generally in the fall, we auction off uh, you know, to honor an animal of your choice. And my yeah. big thing in, in suspense, there are rules and you can never harm an animal. You can kill as many beautiful blondes as you want for whatever reason, <laughs> but you may not harm an animal. It's like those are the rules of suspense. Are you working on something else now or are you taking a breather after uh, Look For Me? Actually, I've already started the next novel. Oh. It will also be a detective, Dee Dee Warren and Flora Dane. They come together again because this time the case is personal. Um, a pregnant wife has shot her husband. Dee rec- recognizes the wife immediately. She actually investigated her already 16 years ago over another shooting. Oh. So now she's kind of like, what's this woman up to? But Flora recognizes the husband. Oh. He hung out with her kidnapper, oh. Jacob Ness. Oh. And so now they both want to know what was going on in this family. Wow. And when will that come out next year? <laughs> <laughs> uh, February of next year. Each year, each February, oh, you have okay. the Super Bowl, and then you have a Lisa Gardner novel. <laughs> <how it works. laughs> I like that combination. Well, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to talk to us today. I really oh, thank appreciate you so much, Pat. it. Lisa Gardner and her latest thriller, Look for Me. The past comes back to haunt many of the characters in James Lee Burke's Roba Show. And at the center of the book is a story that may strike some readers as reminiscent of the current political climate in the United States. Our Joe Avalar spoke with the New York Times bestseller. I've got to start by just telling you, and and let's begin here. I, I really enjoyed your book. I hadn't read any of your work before, and I was just thrilled, thrilled with this novel. And it's, well, I appreciate it. It's so much more than a crime novel or a detective novel. I mean, the characters are more complex. They're more human. They have more emotions. There's more introspection. And and it's a busy book. You've got multiple murders and family dramas. I wanted to talk about what seemed to me one of the big themes in in the book. And I gather in your writing, you've got the past haunting us, haunting the present. Uh, Yes. 
it cripples us or it can come back and kill us. Tell me more about why this is a driving theme for you. Well, you, you went to the essence of the book and actually my view of history and in contemporary historical and contemporary events. Um, we cannot separate ourselves from our past. It's like separating ourselves from our natal beginnings. But unfortunately, we often do that. And, uh, you know, the present is an aggregate of what we have already done. And we each day, in one way or another, reap the harvest for good or bad. So much of it, too, is is that we romanticize our past. And you talk about the antebellum South and how it's romanticized and they hide the ugly truth. And that, that keeps coming back to haunt them, too, doesn't it? Well, that's one of the big ones. Yes, it's not simply, you know, in our own national experience. It's just in the nature of you know, the human odyssey that uh, we tend to romanticize uh, a lot of things that are pretty awful. But that's the nature of history, I guess. It's often selective. I don't want. To, I hate to quote, quote Adolf Hitler, but in Mein Kampf, he said, "History books are written by the victors." Yes, 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 and they tend to forget. <laughs> yes, that's, that's the only thing he got right in that book. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately for him, yeah. he was not a victor. No. <laughs> Thank goodness for the rest of us, he wasn't a victor. Yeah. Your book seems topical, too. Your your protagonist, Dave Robichaud, has has kind of an um, awe-hate feelings toward a demagogue. A political... Yeah. Ne- yeah, we've got a political neophyte with a checkered, mm-hmm. corrupt past. Mm-hmm. And a guy his friends hate, but he can't quite get his head around it because, because he's drawn to his dynamism. Uh, I'm seeing some parallels here with um, our current president. Any, am I right? Well, the story is about uh, the, the, the story is about many things, but at the center of this book, in particular, uh, is the story of a man from a patrician background, not Jimmy Nightingale. He's quite a character, and as you say, Dave uh, admires him. Uh, he has many qualities, uh, but Jimmy Nightingale is a man with enormous political ambition. And he was born wealthy, but he became much wealthier through the casino industry. And he understands his constituency because he's been soaking them for years. (laughs) But his antecedents, Dave says this, the man's antecedents are Huey Long and George Wallace and Senator Joseph McCarthy. And he, Jimmy Nightingale, knows how to inculcate fear and division, xenophobia, misogyny, um, the worst kinds of uh, racism that are emblematic in the portrayal of another character named, um, oh, uh, golly, Moses, my head went blank. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, there are always the demagogues in denim waiting in the eaves, but the story is not based on a condemnation of an individual. It is about the tendency in the rest of us that when we're afraid, we often make the worst choices possible, and collectively, we sometimes turn over reason 
or abandon reason, abandon the judgment that I think Creator has instilled in us, and we put our faith in men who have a wicked uh, agenda. And it usually follows a whole an event that you know suddenly makes people band together underneath the banner of God or under the banner of patriotism or nationalism. But when you hear people's walking, stomping their boots in unison <laughs> down the flagstones uh, or the cobblestones, it's a good time to run. In the opposite direction, absolutely right, absolutely right. That's you- it. Yeah, so, but that's how it works. And you see, Louisiana is a gift from God to the artist or writer uh, because its history, in one way or another, replicates almost everything that has occurred in the history of the United States, the best and the worst. And we meet a character, a novelist named Levon Broussard, whose antecedents were famous Confederates. And he lauds their courage, but he's haunted also by the cause that they represented, namely that of human bondage. And it bothers him. He cannot resolve the conflict. You touch on this in the conversation, and and it really intrigues me. This is a complex book. So, how do you lay out a book like this when you're starting? Well, I to don't. Write it? I, 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 that's very complimentary. <laughs> but oh, but... I, I never uh, lay out a book. I, I've never understood where the story comes from. In all these years, I've never seen more than two scenes ahead okay. in a story. I wake with them in the morning. I write in the middle of the night. And I know that with the first paragraph I write in the novel, that it's meant to be a story, but I never know how it's going to end, and I do not know what's going to be in the next day's work. So I I call it the autistic savant school of literature. But more seriously, Shakespeare put it well. All power lies in the world of dreams. And Leonardo once said, he did not carve the sculpture, he freed it from the stone. It's the inc- I think all knowledge, all science, and all art are the incremental discovery of what already exists. It's a willingness to believe. So, That's the issue, a willingness to believe what others do not. So how then do you structure your day or your night? Because you said you write at night. Do you do you have a set? I, I, just, I work all the time. I work seven days a week, mm-hmm. and I, I work in the morning, in the afternoon, the evening. And I, I worked at 2.30 this morning, and I went back to bed. And <laughs> I got up, uh, and when you called, I was working. So not that's, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, put it this way. Someone once asked Ernest Hemingway, did you ever go through uh, psychoanalysis? And Hemingway said, oh, yes, every day, Dr. Smith Corona. <laughs> <laughs> you lay it all bare on the page. Isn't that, isn't that a great line? That's uh, a great line. It is. It is. <laughs> well, that, that begs the question, too, then. So if you're laying it all bare on the page, and, of course, you, the uh, Dave Robichaud's daughter's got the same name as your daughter, and she's a writer just like your daughter. So then how many family members, how many friends do they look for themselves in your book? Do, 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 do you borrow? How much of your personal life do you borrow and, and shape it? Well, that's a very good question, because I've started off trying to write 
biographically about someone, but the character quickly changes. The characters take on their own identity. They they start going where they want to go. They say what they want to say. So maybe they're composites, but I don't know. I don't know where they come from. Um, there's certain things you learn in the early writing process about the source of your material. And I say material rather than themes, but the dialogue, the characters. That every artist, doesn't matter what the medium is, music, sculpture, drama, uh, writing, poetry, prose, it's, an artist is an observer and a good listener. If he's not, he or she will never create anything that is memorable. It's it's in us. It's in the air. It's all around us. You just go sit in a cafe and watch or listen to what people say. You'll hear all the great lines. You'll hear them come from the mouths of other people rather than oneself. And you have to be smart enough and, and perceptive enough well, to catch it, too. That, 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 that's not just, you, you can't just hear it. I mean, to, to really, what you did was, was capture it and bring it into the book. That's great. Well, I appreciate it. But again, it goes back, not, we, we use the term talent. Okay, what does talent actually involve? Again, it's the same thing, to be willing to believe what other people do not. The pragmatist says yes to the world, the person who changes the world, who always rejects the status quo, and is willing to look at other possibilities, just in the nature of things, that the nature of time. My father believed that he was something of a historian, but he believed that time was not sequential. He believed that all time, all events happened simultaneously. He used to say, as though in a dream in the mind of God. Interesting. You see, that's a very interesting idea, but how many people are willing to think in those terms? Hmm. Let's say they think in conventional terms. Well, if there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, then how did time begin? Well, that's well that immediately we've got a difficult question because it's unanswerable. How can something that has no beginning have anything on the other side of it, like the edges of infinity? Right. And so it's the dreamer, the poet often, and we live in a very pragmatic and often cynical and materialistic society. People, people who are imaginative are often treated with contempt. We revise them down, you know, down... I love I love what uh, Ambrose Bierce once said. Uh, <laughs> he said, uh, "What was it? A a, uh, a saint is a sinner revisited." Ah, <laughs> uh, very good. <laughs> he, yeah, you know he was a cynic. He was in the Civil War. You know, he had very bad experiences. My favorite of his, though, is <laughs> he was asked what a pacifist was. And he answered, a dead Quaker. (laughs) 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 But he was at Shiloh, you see. That's that's where cynicism had its inception. Let me take it. You've hinted on a couple of things. Obviously, you're a big reader. What do you like to read? Oh, everything. I, I read everything. I read a lot of historical stories, you know, and I'm reading a great book now. Golly, when you called, 
Uh, it's Empire of the Summer Moon by uh, this fella, S.C. Gwen. I think he's a journalist in Fort Worth or, or oh, Dallas Morning News. What a book. It's the best book I've read on the Plains Indians. But reading is the way. I mean, to all knowledge, I mean, reading is. I mean, people who don't read are never going to learn a lot. It's, I mean, I, I know people, you know, we live in the electronic era, and people like to denigrate the written word, but, and, you know, they they talk about, you know, electronic transmission. You cannot make a film, one inch of film, a movie or a documentary or a television program without a screenplay. It all starts with the written word. So true. So true. So you it, you do a tremendous amount of research on your characters, on your book, as you... No, as you no, I, I appreciate, again, the compliment. No, I, I don't I do not do any research. No, I try to correct or, or, you know, get the facts right, you know, about small things. It's mostly minutia, but I, I no, I never, I never, I don't know. Everyone works differently. Yeah. I don't know if you read Ron Hansen's work. Ron is great at recreating the past, you know, giving voice. I think it's how Ron once said it. He tries to give voice to people who are, uh, never had any and historical figures. But I, I know, I think, again, the story's already written. If you got to research it, there's something wrong. That That's my own view. I mean, other I met uh, kind of a historian, uh, historical writer. Uh, Ir- oh, golly, man wrote Lust for Life. Golly, the president's lady. Oh, jeez. He was such a nice gentleman. I went to a, what was more or less a poor boy college, or was years ago, uh, <clears throat> small college in the South. And, and he met with our little writing group, eight or nine of us, and we were all about 19. 18, 19 years old, he was such a gentleman. But uh, he said that you know you, you you write a story as best you can. You let the voices inside you have their way. But uh, he said it's the passion, the emotion, your love of your characters, your love of the story. That uh, don't become a scientist. Remain an artist. How do you? It, uh, you're answering the question, so I, 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 I wondered to ask it, but but is it tough for you sometimes? You're on your twenty. Is it twenty-one books in the Robo Show series now? Is that right? I've got. Uh, yes, this was the twenty-first. So uh-huh. how, how do you keep it fresh? How do you keep him fresh? The characters fresh with new things to say, um, stories that then don't repeat themselves. Is that, that that's the challenge? You went to the heart of it, um, and here's the answer. Um, I, I've written, I've published 38 books now, but 21 of them are narrated by David, Dave Robichaux, but I believe they're all different. They were intended to be different, because Dave Robichaux is a witness to history, and his origins actually lie in the medieval morality plays. He's the everyman figure. He's the blue-collar knight rant. He's Chaucer's good knight, the knight templar. But he's out of classical mythology and, and literature. But each book deals with something that is larger than an issue in Louisiana. But plus, the books travel. They go to Montana, Colorado, Old Mexico, Florida, Mississippi, Texas. People never notice that. It's funny. And maybe it's 
because New Iberia, where he lives, is a very engaging place. Uh, you know, it's a it's piece of the Caribbean history right there on the southern rim of the United States. Yeah, there's so much, as you said earlier, there's so much in Louisiana, and and it and it reflects so much of the United States. But there's a lot to draw on, and you spent a long time. Did you grow up in Louisiana? You spent a long time. Yeah, there. yeah, anywhere between Houston and New Orleans, I could call home. Yeah, yeah, I grew up on the, the southern rim. You know, Houston, New Iberia, Lake Charles, Lafayette, New Orleans. James Lee Burke, it's been a pleasure. And now I gather, um, since he, uh, Dave Robichaud goes all over the United States doing things, I really have a lot to look forward to in reading 21 more books. Well, that's very thoughtful of you, and I appreciate uh, the interview. And you've done a very good job. Oh, well, I appreciate you. your courtesy. <laughs> Pleasure's mine. Pleasure's mine. It's James Lee Burke, multiple award-winning author of Robichaud. And in case you're wondering who Burke's writer daughter is, she's Alifair Burke, whose recent collaboration with Mary Higgins Clark was featured on one of our podcasts last year. Her newest book, if you want to check it out, is called The Wife. We first met caregiver Louisa Clark in Jojo Moyes' international bestseller, Me Before You. That hit was followed by the sequel, After You. And Still Me, the third installment, Louisa is back and in New York, where she has to quickly learn how to navigate the city's high society. I recently spoke with JoJo about what may be the final chapter of Louisa's story. In Still Me, we catch up with Louisa Clark again. Tell us where we find her. Well, we literally find her not 24 hours after the end of the last book. Um, She's just touched down in New York, and and the book literally opens at immigration, uh, because I think that's most people's first really um, impactful experience of New York. It's, It's the immigration hall at JFK. And you really tap into the pulse of New York and all these different neighborhoods, all these different people. Um, how did you do that? What was your process? Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad you thought so because there's nothing more terrifying than writing about somebody else's city. You know, as, a, as someone who grew up in London, I'm really conscious that if someone wrote about North London as a South London, South Londoner, they'd probably get stuff wrong. So it was important to me to do a lot of research. I came over a few times. I, I did a lot of the things that I've put Louisa through. Um, but mostly... My one concern was New York has been written about so beautifully by so many people, you know, from Breakfast at Tiffany's onwards. Uh, And I thought the only way I can do this with any degree of, I don't know, um, kind of veracity was to to actually go at it through Louisa's eyes and, and kind of see New York through the eyes of an alien rather than try and pretend I was some great expert at it. So that's sort of how I approached it. I mean, as a native New Yorker, I have to tell you, you really hit the nail on the head, especially you have this line where um, you mentioned that persistent New York feeling that staying in meant you were missing out on something. I thought you had reached into my head and pulled that out. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. Well, you know, I talk to a lot of New Yorkers as well, and I have spent a lot of time there. So, uh, yeah, I, I tried to absorb some of that. But thank you if I've got that right. So just like in Me Before You, in this book, you don't shy away for some big or controversial topics. This time around, it's the immigrant experience, which you mentioned, and a little bit more of that. And this disparity Mm -hmm. between the haves and the have-nots and a little bit of women's rights. What led you down that path? 
we live in a really political age. I think it's it's almost impossible not to absorb a lot of what's going on um, in terms of of p- politics around us and 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 the women's issues especially. Um, I guess my work tends to be shot through with politics, but in a way that hopefully is a little bit coated in honey so that I I don't want to kind of hammer home a political message, but I do like possibly making people think a little bit about some of the issues. And for me, society is polarizing so fast between the haves and the have-nots. It's certainly happening in the UK. I'm guessing it's happening in the US um, from what I see. It it worries me because... um, I mean, in Fifth Avenue, you literally have people who don't touch the sidewalk. They, you know, there are carpets that people walk down to get to their limos, which I find kind of almost it's like the most naked expression of of just not really not wanting to be part of the city around you. Um, so, yeah, that fascinates me that you could have that on one street and the, down the street you'll have the newspaper vendor who who's kind of got the training from Queens at 4 a.m. to do his job. It's 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 all there, and I think you can be a, a commercial novelist or even a romantic novelist and still cover that stuff because if you don't, you're kind of ignoring most of what's going on around you. And I don't know if this was intentional on your part, but Mrs. Gopnik reminds me a little bit of Melania Trump. Well, that that was a strange one because when I started writing this book, um, the whole Trump thing hadn't really become a phenomenon. and. It was only when I finished the book and someone actually said to me, yeah, you're Agnes' character. There's a touch of the Melania's there. And I went, oh, oh, yeah. Um, but she was actually, my character was kind of loosely based on a Polish masseuse that I met in New York a few years ago. So, um, yeah, it was a little bit strange how real life started drawing parallels. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's not art imitating life. It's life imitating art that time. Exactly, exactly. But um, I think perhaps the situation that we have in real life is is far more far-fetched than than the one in my book. (laughs) I've I've always been fascinated by Louisa's sense of style, like uh, like in awe of it and completely shocked because it's not something I would ever do. How Mm. did that side of her character come to be? Well, initially, it was just a way of expressing the fact that underneath this very unambitious small town girl was something a little bit more interesting. You know, I used to know some girls like this that I grew up with who, you know, they just got jobs as barmaids or, you know, local shop girls. But they they dressed with such creativity and individuality that it kind of took my breath away. And that's always stayed with me. I mean, I, I'm a very conservative dresser generally. I'm I'm that person who wears jeans and boots and a shirt and a jumper pretty much six days out of seven. Um, so I suppose Louise has become my kind of alter ego. And weirdly, I have ended up buying more vintage clothes since since I started writing her. But I think the thing I really love about her wardrobe choices is that she dresses entirely for herself. You know, in an age where we're expected to look sexy or we're expected to look, you know, any number of different ways, she just wakes up every morning and says, who am I going to be today? And just has fun with it. And I think the thing that I really love about the bumblebee tights, which have become such a motif of, of the books and also, you know, play a very key pivotal point in, in Still Me, is that there is no clearer expression of not dressing for a man <laughs> than those bumblebee tights. There is not a man on the planet who thinks that bumblebee tights are sexy or even particularly attractive. But 
they are fun. They're just, you know, they're just a woman having fun with what she's wearing. And that's interesting, too, because that doesn't necessarily square away to who Louisa is as a person. Like that aspect, she's allowed to be, allows herself to be carefree. But in other things, she's very unsure. And- yeah. And, and a, a good part of this book is about Louisa finally working out how to ask for the things that she wants and how to even identify the things that she wants. Because I think she does a thing that a lot of girls do and, and perhaps even some women, which is to mold herself around what other people expect. You know, she's a very kind person. She's very empathetic. So she tends to work out what people need before she's worked out what she herself needs. So will we be seeing more of Louisa in the future? You know, I think probably not. I I think this feels like the natural conclusion to her story, but that does make me kind of sad. So I, I've told myself that maybe I'll write a short story in the future that revisits her. Um, yeah, I, I can't think of any other way, but I I just, I don't want to kind of, I don't want people to feel that I've flogged her to death. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll leave that door open then. Thank you. <laughs> Jojo Moyes, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on your show. And that's a wrap. On tap next week, a time-traveling love story and a murder mystery set in a village that has the dubious honor of being the place where the last wolf in England was killed. If you want to know what else we're up to, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.